welcome. Uh, my name is Matt. It's great to see everybody this morning. As Lisa mentioned, this is our last sermon in uh, the Deeper series. Again, though, I just want to encourage you to come uh, next Sunday, especially next Sunday night to the celebration. We wrap this up, not just Deeper, but the whole year of spiritual formation uh, so far. Um, if you have a Bible or your app, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. And I want to walk through this passage here in uh, Matthew's gospel, and we're going to move into celebrating communion together at the end, and so that's open to anybody who's a follower of Jesus, but I just want to give you a heads up, and we'll talk more about that uh, when we get there. So in Matthew 18, uh, we have this moment where Peter comes to Jesus, and he's feeling, I don't know, kind of spiritual maybe, or he's feeling proud of himself, and Jesus was just explaining how two people who were in conflict with each other, how they could go about making restitution or finding reconciliation. And maybe something about what Jesus said reminded Peter of something in his own life. Maybe someone who had offended him over and over. Or maybe it brought to mind just a difficult relationship that Peter had. And so Peter pulls Jesus kind of off to the side and says, hey, Jesus, got a question for you. And he's been around Jesus for a while, and so he's familiar with how the whole Jesus program works, he thinks. And it says this in Matthew 18, 21, then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive someone who sins against me? And Peter here tries to impress Jesus up to seven times, like, I'll go above and beyond. Seven is a nice, round Bible number. What about seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times, or it could be translated 70 times seven. This number is actually an allusion to Genesis, way back in the beginning, chapter four, uh, where Lamech, who is a descendant of Cain, Lamech uses this number to refer to unlimited vengeance against someone who hurt him. And Jesus does what he often does. He takes a familiar phrase and he turns it. In this case, he uses the same number to call for not unlimited vengeance, but essentially unlimited forgiveness. But I think Peter's question, I think it reveals a bit of confusion in his mind about the nature of forgiveness. Uh, Peter's assumption clearly is that forgiveness is for the basically the benefit of the offender. Like, if I'm going to do something nice to benefit someone who hurt me, okay, I'll stretch, I'll bend, but, but look, at what point do I draw the line and say, that's enough? And then Jesus goes off on a story, which he often does, a made-up parable. And at first, it seems like he has changed the subject completely. Verse 23, Therefore, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was, was brought to him. Now, this translation, which is the NIV, trying to be helpful and translate the original Greek into something that means something to us. So here, you know, 10,000 bags of gold, which is what it translates, which I don't know, that sounds like a lot. What it actually says in Greek, though, in the original, is 10,000 talents, which, of course, we don't really have a reference point for. But this is a huge sum of money. We know, for example, 
that the annual salary of Herod the Great, who was the king of Israel when Jesus was a child, or he died when Jesus was a kid, was reportedly 900 talents a year. So the servant in the parable owes this king, this master, more than 10 times that amount. To give another comparison, uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian, reports that about 90 years before this, the Romans extracted 10,000 talents from the entire Jewish nation after the general Pompey and his troops occupied Israel. My Bible has a footnote that says one talent was worth about 20 years of a day laborer's wages. So any way you look at it, this guy owes 10,000 of those. So you'd have to work for like 200,000 years to pay, literally, assuming you keep your living expenses to a minimum. Uh, <laughs> this, was, this is beyond what he or any person could pay. It's almost beyond comprehension. And I think Jesus very intentionally chooses an unimaginable debt because there's a punchline coming. And I think we miss this. We're not familiar with first century context. And also, we don't expect Jesus to have a sense of humor. So I'm going to let you know where to laugh, okay? <laughs> Verse 25. Since he was not able to pay. There it is. Really? You think? Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Of course he can't pay. He can't even come close. Bankruptcy is his only option. Of course, they don't actually have that back then. But even with his wife and his kids and all his stuff sold to repay the debt. I mean, what is that? 1% of 1%? I mean, it's not even scratching the surface. The king here, the master, can do the math. And so he's just planning on cutting his losses. I'll take what little I can and then move on to the next thing. Verse 26. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. And I know you're ready this time. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. Okay, buddy. Sure you will. I mean, there's no way he can possibly pay this debt. He's in huge trouble. And in his desperation, he goes, don't worry, master. I'm good for it. I just need a little more time. But he knows life as he knows it, is over. Now, what happens next is unbelievable. Verse 27, the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. The master, the king, cancels the debt for reasons entirely internal to himself. He ignores all of this nonsense about repayment. And to the servant's shock, he makes a giant line through his ledger book. He says, you know what? We're good. We're even. I mean, can you imagine being forgiven a debt like that? I don't know if you've ever had a, a debt paid off, and what a huge relief, even if it's a small one. Um, this is a, an amazing story. Jesus could have ended it here, but he goes on, and there's another part, verse 28. But when that servant went out, when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him, get this, a hundred silver coins, which is basically some petty debt that he got from their, like their Thursday night bowling league, is essentially. He grabbed him and began to choke him, 
Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. Okay, how unbelievable is this? You've just been forgiven 10,000 talents, and you can't forgive, like, literally pocket change in comparison with what this guy owed the king, which should leave us going, what are you thinking? How could you not forgive a minuscule debt when you have been forgiven so much? Verse 29, his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me, and I will pay it back. That, <clears throat> that should sound vaguely familiar because this is the exact language that the servant used moments before in pleading for mercy from his master. So hearing these words now from the guy who owed him should have triggered something, you would think, in his brain, but he doesn't remember, apparently. Verse 30, but he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. So you have the unforgiving servants, his colleagues, they see his unmerciful behavior and they know this is, this is just not right because they understand what the king has done. They know that the king has laid down vast royal rights. As far as the indebted servant has gone, I mean, the king has basically rolled over and played dead. They see clearly, what an outrage, what a violation of grace when the servant forgets all of this and is instead unwilling to lay down his petty claims. He grabs this guy by the throat and throws him in prison. Verse 32, then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? He, the master's like, are you out of your mind? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. By the way, this was not some cruel and unusual punishment. This is simply a matter of holding the servant to his end of the original arrangement. He owed, and now he would have to pay. I mean, the master is basically saying, all right, if that's what you want, what you deserve, then here you go. Now, it's this last verse. This is the part that makes me uncomfortable. Jesus is done with the story, and he gives one line of commentary. What he's hoping is very, very clear at this point from the story. Verse 35, application point. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive a brother or sister from your heart. That's pretty heavy stuff, isn't it? This is called a contingency clause. Now, we don't know what Peter is thinking at this point. Probably something like, sheesh, I'm sorry I brought this up in the first place. I'm guessing that like two-thirds of the way through this interaction, Peter's like, I don't think this is going to go my way. Jesus is saying that God's forgiveness of us is contingent on our forgiveness of others. Now, Part of me does not want to go there. Part of me is like, oh, he, he doesn't really mean that, right? Maybe he's exaggerating to make a point. Maybe if I read this backwards in a mirror or standing upside down on my head, I could find a way to make it mean something else. The problem is that Jesus repeats this, and it's, it's very clear. In Matthew 6, he says, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive 
your sins. That sounds pretty straightforward. I can't think of any way to soften that or make it mean something easier or less. We all know Jesus uh, in the Lord's Prayer. He teaches us to pray, Father, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who've sinned against us. You hear the as in there? Forgive as in the manner that to the degree which forgive as we forgive others. Jesus told lots of parables about grace, freely given to all. And then he gets to this point and he says, if we insist on tying others' debts upon them in the name of our own rights, we will, in effect, by not letting grace flow through us, essentially cut ourselves off from the joy of God's grace in us. Peter had his answer Forgive every time. If you don't, you will pay dearly. If we hold out, waiting to be paid back for the wrongs done to us, in the end, we'll be the one who pays. There may not be a literal prison involved, but uh, if we refuse to forgive, we are pushing the self-destruct button on our own lives. I don't know why that picture came to my mind. Lewis Smedes, uh, he writes, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner was you. Or as Anne Lamott puts it, with a little more sass, not forgiving is like drinking rat poison and then waiting for the rat to die. The point of all this, Jesus is saying, yeah, forgiveness will cost you. It'll cost you. Unforgiveness, however, will cost you more. Jesus couldn't have been any clearer. We are to forgive the people who've offended us, hurt us, abandoned us, rejected us, embarrassed us. These are the people who owe us, people we have a legitimate case against. Now, I realize this is like a, this is heavy. And Sometimes with a subject like this, our minds start turning a bit, and it's like, wait a second, Matt, what are you really saying here? Uh, this is tricky for us to wrestle with. What is forgiveness? What is it not? I'm guessing that some of you here, you have been so hurt by individuals in your life, maybe over a long period of time, or you've gone through some really horrific things, and you could get up here this morning and you could tell your story and by the time you were done, we would all, we would all be mad for you. We would all be the first to agree, yeah, you have every right to hold on to your anger. I mean, I can't blame you after what that person put you through. In fact, we would be tempted to join you on your crusade to pay back whoever it was for whatever they did to you. So if that's you, let me just be the first to say, you didn't deserve to be treated the way you were treated. They didn't deserve to get away with it. But here's what Jesus says. By the way, not me. I don't have the nerve to say this. You, he says, have to forgive if you want to be forgiven. To refuse to forgive, no matter how deep the pain, you're like the servant. You've forgotten the mercy that was shown to you. I mean, we so quickly forget what God's done for us. Um, and this is so simple, but it's, it's the heart of the story. 
and really the reason why often we're reluctant to extend forgiveness to the people around us. We forget what God has done for us. Paul says in Colossians, bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. And then he says it, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Like the servant in the story, we have a perspective problem and also a pretty short memory. C.S. Lewis says, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable. Why? Because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. If forgiveness really is as important in the eternal scheme of things as Jesus says it is, and I'm inclined to believe him, then we need to talk just a minute about what it looks like and and how do we do it. Um, I think often in the church, forgiveness is misunderstood. It can actually be one of the worst taught topics in the church, and we turn it into something it's not, and it gets really messy. And so I want to get really, really painfully practical uh, for just a few moments. Uh, First, a couple of things that forgiveness is not. And I want to be very clear on this. Number one, forgiveness is not the same as excusing. Excusing is what we do when we factor extenuating circumstances into our behavior. So for example, we excuse expectant fathers for driving too fast when they're taxiing a woman in labor. We excuse a clumsy skier for bumping into us, especially when we find out they're just a beginner. We excuse eight-year-old boys for making bodily noises because they're eight-year-old boys. But forgiveness is what's required when there is no good rationale for why they did what they did. Again, Lewis Smedes, he says, when an action is excusable, it doesn't require forgiveness. Forgiveness is for when we, can't, we simply can't excuse what they did. This means that forgiveness isn't pretending that what someone did wasn't so bad. It's not pretending like it didn't happen. Number two, forgiveness is not the same as forgetting. I hear this all the time. We have this Christian notion of like, well, you know, forgive and forget. The problem with that is that it actually makes a virtue out of having a bad memory. <laughs> okay, nobody else. Um, that's fine. And, and yes, there are scriptures that, that you know, kind of talk about or use language of forgetting to describe how God uh, deals with our sin. But number one, that's a figure of speech. That doesn't mean that God has a memory retrieval problem. It means that our sins become irrelevant to his dealings with us. And actually, it doesn't say that God forgets our sins. It says that God remembers our sins no more. You think about that word, uh, remember, as in the opposite of dismember. He doesn't keep re-putting it back together. Forgiveness isn't forgetting. It is a conscious choice to not keep remembering, going back there in our minds, constantly playing the tape over and over, ruminating around these memories and what happened. Again, the point, though, is forgiveness is precisely what is required when we can't forget, when there is no good excuse. And then three, forgiveness is not the same as reconciling. 
Forgiveness and reconciling are two completely different words in Scripture on purpose, meaning they're two different things. Sometimes we think that forgiveness means we have to reunite with this person who hurt us, betrayed us, you know, whatever it is. We have to reunite with them, whatever the, whatever the cost, no matter what. In the parable that Jesus told, uh, the master originally forgives the servant. That doesn't mean he has to lend the guy money again. Forgiveness doesn't mean you become a doormat. It doesn't mean that you tolerate bad behavior or poor choices. Forgiveness is a condition of the heart, which means forgiveness can actually take place in the heart of one person, even if it doesn't happen. It's regardless of how the other person acts. Reconciliation is different. That kind of implies that all parties are basically on the same page. Reconciliation requires that, that the offender still be alive and genuinely repentant of the wrong he or she has done. You don't always get that. You can actually forgive someone, though, who's not even alive anymore. Reconciliation doesn't work like that. And we know from Scripture that reconciliation is the goal. But Jesus and writers like Paul also make it very clear that that, that doesn't always happen. And we talked about that last week. So, that is some of what forgiveness is not, but I want to be clear on what it is. Jesus actually takes the mystery of forgiveness, and he puts it, I think, in terms that everybody can understand. In the parable, we see very clearly forgiveness is the decision to cancel a debt. Whenever someone hurts you, there is a sense in which they've taken something from you. A debt has been incurred. If someone gossips about you, it amounts to that person stealing your good reputation. When an employer fires a worker unjustly, the employer robs the worker of her financial security. So wherever there's hurt, there's a theft, there's an imbalance. Somebody owes someone. By the way, this is why we have sayings like, I am going to get even with him, or you owe me an apology. See, in order to achieve justice, a a transaction has to take place that transfers something back to the victim. It could be an apology, it could be money, some other form of restitution, but that tension will remain until the debt is settled. Jesus teaches that forgiveness at its most basic level is canceling a debt. So here's what the process of forgiveness looks like. And I want to offer four steps, and these sound very, very simple. I'm drawing these from Andy Stanley's book, Enemies of the Heart, and they're taken literally straight from this parable we just looked at. Again, sounds simple. Please do not be fooled. Okay, it takes a lot of courage to actually do this. And my hope and my prayer as we walk through this I I believe this really could be freeing uh, for some of us. That for some of you, some of us in this room, your spiritual health, your emotional health, maybe to some degree even your physical health is contingent on what we're talking about right now. In fact, for some of you, the reason why you're not doing very well spiritually, perhaps, is because there's some unforgiveness in your life. And it's draining the life out of you spiritually. 
It's affecting your other relationships and all kinds of things you may not even be aware of. And so we need to figure out what that is and address it. So here's the first step of forgiveness. Number one, identify who you're angry with. And I notice I'm not seeing anyone write that down. I know that sounds obvious, but it's not, and here's why. Uh, Forgiveness is more than just a decision to move on with your life and forget the past. Trying to forget a debt is not the same thing as canceling it. So this requires making a list of the people who have mistreated you or taken advantage of you, people who owe you something. Don't assume that you've forgiven someone just because you've, quote, put it behind you. Let me ask a few pointed questions in case you can't think of anyone. Who do you hope to never see again? Oh, you thought of somebody. That's interesting. Who do you find yourself having imaginary conversations with? I'm so good at that, and I come out looking so good in these imaginary arguments. But anyway, um, who would you like to pay back if you thought you could get away with it? Who do you secretly desire to see fail? Like, whose failure would you celebrate? I mean, congratulations, I'm so happy for you. This means we got to dig a bit. Family, friends, exes, maybe a parent who passed. People we work with, coaches, bosses. Um, This is not fun, but it's really important, and here's why. If you don't identify who you're angry with, who specifically owes you, you know what will happen? Pretty soon, you'll come to believe everybody owes you. It just bleeds over into how we see the world. You guys know anybody um, who you call an angry person? They're angry, it seems, all the time with just about everybody. It's just their demeanor. Like their anger isn't reserved for any one person specifically. As a pastor, I run into this sometimes with people who have church pain or baggage, and they'll say things like, the church hurt them. Uh, So I'm done with the church. And and when I push them a little, usually it's not the church because that's two billion people. It's actually an individual or a leader or a particular group of people in a specific church community. The point is this. Chances are, when that starts bleeding over, chances are the anger or the hurt that we feel started out focused on someone. And over time, because it wasn't identified, someone turns into just everyone, the world around me. Number two, figure out what they owe you. This is very important, and we most of the time skip this step. We end up forgiving generally, not specifically, because we hurt generally. But we have to forgive specifically. And this is where the parable is so helpful. Just as the master forgave the specific amount owed to him by the servant, we got to figure out. We have to name exactly what is owed to us by the people who've hurt us. You already know what the person who hurt you did. You already know that. 
My question, though, is what exactly did they take? And until you know the answer to that, you're probably not ready to forgive. Until you know the answer to that, you're, you're likely to just go through the motions of forgiveness without experiencing any of the, the freedom. So this right here could be a, a game changer for some of us. What do the people on your list owe you? What'd they take from you? What would they need to return in order to get things back the way they were? An apology? Money? Time? A marriage? A family? A reputation? An opportunity? A promotion? A chapter in your life? Your childhood? Be really specific. Because you can't cancel a debt that you haven't actually identified. Here is why this is so, so freeing, at least to me. We understand that forgiveness, whether it's God forgiving us or us forgiving others, we understand that that is really costly. And yes, there is that kind of Christian, quote, notion of cheap forgiveness, or you're just supposed to forgive because it's like, it's just sentiment and goodwill or whatever. But we intuitively know that genuine forgiveness is costly. So costly that you absorb the loss the debt. You take it upon yourself. When you forgive, you bear the burden that somebody has given you without holding them accountable to pay you back. See, I think determining what they owe you, I think what that actually does is dignify the fact that you are now bearing that burden and you already know this in your gut that you're carrying something because of them. So by naming it, specifically what they owe you, I think you're honoring that, that hurt. And that, that's actually real. You're not downplaying or minimizing it. Number three, cancel the debt. This is a decision. I choose to cancel this debt. You don't owe me any longer. I don't have to tell you, by the way. I can just do it. Or between me and Jesus, you know, Lord, here's what they owe me. I cancel it. It doesn't mean that we feel like doing this. I don't know that I've ever felt like forgiving. Uh, it runs so contrary to our sense of justice and fairness. It's not likely we'll ever feel like it. And even after we've forgiven, we may not feel much in the moment. I want to be clear. Um, do you have to tell the person that you have, in fact, forgiven them? I would say... Uh, not necessarily. In some cases, that might do more harm than good because you know people who've hurt you, perhaps, and they feel like they haven't done a thing wrong. And so sharing your decision to forgive could be take, oh, you've forgiven me. You see, that could be condescending and, and not great. Here is the genius of forgiveness. There is nothing wrong with wanting to be paid back for what was taken. That's owed to you. The problem is this. In most cases, in most cases, it's actually impossible to be reimbursed for what they took. And so here's what I want you to see. And when this first clicked for me, it just, it's the part of this that made sense, and it just freed me up to think about this and to let go of some areas I was hanging on to past hurts. In the parable, the master who forgave the servant's debt do you realize, was going to be out lots and lots of money 
regardless of how he handled the situation. The servant owed him far more than he could ever repay, selling the guy's wife and kids and possessions. Wouldn't begin to recover what the, the king deserved, what he was owed. It's the same with us. When you think about who owes you and what they owe you specifically, it leads to a very, I think, helpful realization. In many, many cases, we are owed a debt that can't be paid back. Can a man who abandoned his kids ever really replace what he's taken? Can the teenager or the young adult who's made their parents' life miserable for years ever give back what they've taken? And how do you restore time or a missing relationship or affection? You can't pay back a reputation. There's no way to make up for years of criticism and neglect. How does someone give you back your innocence? I mean, these are debts that cannot be repaid. Nothing can make up for the past, or at least change the past. Nothing can rewind time. To some extent, there will always be an outstanding debt. And so to hang on to that and to wait and to insist that we're going to be repaid is just to make ourselves prisoners, to let bitterness and anger take root and grow. Canceling the debt frees us from trying to collect something we can never actually get back. And then lastly, dismiss the case. This is the daily decision not to reopen the case. I have settled this in my heart. Of course, the bigger the offense, the larger the transgression, the longer it may take to get to this point. It is often not a once and done thing. It may mean declaring your forgiveness a hundred times a day at first. I think what makes this so hard is that our decision to forgive, again, doesn't erase our memories. Usually what happens is as soon as we do forgive someone, something happens to remind us of the offense and that all the feelings come flooding back in. When this happens, you don't have to remember, re-put together. You don't have to crank up imaginary conversations. You also don't have to pretend like you don't have those feelings. It's just letting it be what it is. Taking this as the opportunity to say for the hundredth time, you know what? He, she doesn't owe me anymore. While we have memories that will always, perhaps always be somewhat painful, the power of forgiveness is that over time, and it takes time, those same memories no longer raise the resentment, the same bitterness or frustration they once did. Over time, it's possible you find yourself even seeing their humanity in a way you didn't see before. Maybe even wishing this person well. Again, forgiveness does not automatically create or imply a relationship. Anne Lamott says something about how forgiveness doesn't mean you necessarily have to have lunch with the person. Although I think it does allow for the possibility, not the guarantee, but the possibility that some unexpected door down the road is open toward reconciliation. Forgiveness is not the same as trust. There are situations where a relationship of trust is not possible. Even if you wanted it, the person is not demonstrating 
that they're going to change or is trustworthy or whatever. Forgiveness in the parable isn't about forgetting. It's about letting go of the other person's throat. And so you make up your mind to cancel the debt. You decide and you say, you don't owe me. From one forgiven soul to another, you don't owe me anymore. By the way, there is a reason why this topic, I think, comes last with the topics that we've looked at with Deeper. First of all, it takes work to get to this point, being willing to look beneath the surface in my own life, to deal with my past or to take steps toward that, to be willing to be honest about our grief and our losses. And as we get into that, and maybe you can relate to this, often, if we have the courage to go there, we realize, oh, there is a person. There is a situation I thought I'd forgotten about. But yeah, I have someone that I need to forgive. I want to remind you that Jesus ties our forgiveness of others to our relationship with him. Which means, is there anything more integral to your spiritual, emotional, relational, and dare I say, even physical health to some degree? I mean, this impacts, this affects every aspect of our lives. We simply cannot be emotionally healthy if we hold on to unforgiveness. We're going to move into communion, and I want to invite Cliff to come back up. Jesus is our ultimate example of the practice of forgiveness. You realize he didn't just give us teachings on this. I mean, the whole reason he came was to, in grace and in mercy, reconcile us back to God. Jesus didn't just talk about forgiveness. This is the way that he lived his life. Even at the Last Supper, with the disciples around him, he's in love, serves the person he knows is moments away from betraying him. He extends love and forgiveness to all the other guys who, to a fault, um, or without exception, are not, or they're going to deny him when he needs them most. Even on the cross, on his way to forgive every sin we've ever committed or will ever commit, he said about the people who were crucifying him, Father, forgive them. Which means Jesus knows firsthand how difficult this is. He knows what it means to be betrayed, hurt, rejected, abandoned, misunderstood. He knows that people will hurt us. But he knows you have a choice. And you can choose unforgiveness, which leads to bitterness. It leads to anger. Uh, it leads to all kinds of things. Or you can choose forgiveness, which is the only way to have a soul that is free and at peace. Jesus knows forgiveness will cost you, but unforgiveness in the end will cost you more. So forgiveness is how we love others like Jesus. It's how we become more like him, and it's one of the marks of a true follower of Jesus and how well, how we choose to forgive. And so as we move to communion, um, who do you need to forgive? They've taken something from you. What is it? 
What is it that they owe you? And you realize they can never pay you back. So what are you going to do? May you have the courage, like our Savior, to cancel the debt. Say, I no longer hold you to this. Yes, for your sake, but because I want to be free. I want to be free. In light of the forgiveness that we've received from God, what does this look like for you? I love the line um, in Luke chapter 7. Jesus essentially says, when you get in touch with that, when you know what God has done for you, it just changes your posture. It just changes how you view people because people are going to hurt us. Um, it, it changes that. He essentially says, whoever has been forgiven much loves much. And so we're compelled by Jesus to extend the grace and the forgiveness that we have received to those around us. May the grace that you've experienced in you also flow through you. I want to invite our volunteers, our servers to come forward. Uh, we have stations in the front here on either side. There's one in the back. In just a moment, I'll pray and you'll be invited. Actually, there might be one back there as well. There are, there are four, so look around. I want to pray, and it, it does occur to me that maybe you're here and you're pretty good at forgiving everybody else, but you have a hard time forgiving yourself. And I just want to remind you that there is one who no longer holds our sins against us, that he has forgiven you. Um, and so I, I encourage you to bring that to him, to let him have that. Uh, would you pray with me? Father, help us this morning to maybe once again, we need your help on this sometimes, but once again be in touch at a heart level, not in our heads, but in our heart of how much we've received from you, your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness, the debt that we have racked up by our sin against you that you no longer count against us. Help us to sit with that for a minute. And then, Lord, as we think about the people who've hurt us, who've wronged us, those places we go back to in our minds and we, re we replay the tape over and over and over, God, may we have the courage to be honest about that, to name specifically, to identify what it is that that, that person took. And I pray that you give us the strength, the grace to cancel that debt. And Lord, tomorrow when we're reminded of that and when it comes back up, help us to get to that place where we just say, we've dismissed that. We don't need to keep going round and round because we want to be free. Help us to know what steps to take and help us to have the courage to do it. Pray that you would speak to us and meet us in this moment as we commune with you at your table. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.